Okay, I'm going to uh, attempt to do something that I failed at the last service, and that's actually speak in 15 minutes. told everybody I'd cut the sermon in half, and instead of speaking 30 minutes, speak 15, and they all thought I was serious. And uh, so anyway, uh, what I try to do is just talk to you about some things that I think are really important from Mark's chapter 8 and 9 and touch on 10 a little bit. It's when I tend to kind of get rolling, I get way out there off subject, so just going to focus on a few brief things this morning. I want to read you the text and then make a couple comments about it. Then I want to talk about three things that just come out. There are many things that come out in this text. It's so very important. Mark 8 is, is everything in Mark is driving to the last verses of Mark chapter 8. That's how important this is. It's like everything that uh, we have read up to this point all drives to this moment. So really important, really important verses. I want to bring out just three things from it, and that what we see is there's unlikely people. God is going to do something special in unlikely people and unlikely places, and God has a very unlikely plan. So if you like to fill in the blanks on the back of this, I just gave you all the blanks. There's like no anticipation for what's coming next. You could even go to sleep right now, and you wouldn't, you know, you'd have the entire sermon. Also, this is one of the few times that you can take your smartphone out and because, like, you can be texting Derek the questions that you have. But also, it's a time that, shoot, I mean, you could be doing plain Angry Birds. Nobody would know. They, people, would, people would think, oh, my gosh, look how that person is really such a student of the Bible. They're texting Derek multiple questions, just flowing there constantly. Let's read this. So this is what it says, Mark chapter 8. It says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, this, this is going to sound familiar to you guys. I hope it does. Just think about this. Who do people say I am? And, and so they replied, okay, now some people say you're John the Baptist and other people say you're Elijah. So John the Baptist, Elijah, like you know, special, holy people, good people, nice people, okay? Uh, you're also a, a prophet. Other people are saying you're a prophet. Now, that sounds really familiar to us, doesn't it? Be, because that a very popular belief about Jesus Jesus, you ask somebody today, today, who's Jesus? Oh, Jesus is a good guy. Jesus is a really good guy. He's a good guy. Man, God sent him. He did some great things. Good. Uh, is he God? No, but really good guy. He's a prophet. You ask somebody who's Muslim or maybe somebody who is Buddhist. Even ask somebody who's an atheist. Good, you know, Jesus, good guy. He's a good guy. Now, where this comes in is if you've been following along in this story, the immediate story right before this was about the guy who was blind, and Jesus said, please pray for me. Jesus prays for him. He says, okay, you see something? And the guy says, I see people. They look like trees walking around. So he could see, but he could, really couldn't see all the way. He needed another touch. He needed another touch. Now, that's why this is so incredible. Okay, people think you're just a good guy. Oh, they don't think I'm God? No, think you're just a good guy. They need another touch. You see how that comes in? You see how the two stories are just woven beautifully together? Need another, being able to understand who Jesus Christ is isn't something, ah, I'm going to make it happen, or you know, I want this person over here, right? I'm going to evangelize this person right over here. Man, you are going to see that Jesus is God. Believe me, I'm telling you. It happens. It's supernatural. Like It doesn't happen without the touch of God. I mean, this is why we pray all the time, this thing, this grace encounter that's in your bulletin. It's why we pray for this all the time. It takes the touch of God to understand who Jesus is. It's a wonderful miracle, the touch of God, the touch of God, okay? So this is what we see here. Now, continues on. Then he says, okay, now let's turn it directly to you. So here comes the second touch, the second question. He said, who do you say I am? And Peter answers, you're the Christ. 
You're the Christ. What does that mean, you're the Christ? To be the Christ means you're the... Christ is, it means anointed, right? It's the Hebrew word anointed. Who do you anoint? You anoint kings. So he said, you, Jesus, are the true king, the king to end all kings, the king we've been waiting for. That's who you are. Now watch what happens next. Immediately on the heels of that, this big moment that we've been waiting for, everybody, Jesus says, verse 30, Jesus warned them. Don't tell anybody this. Now, is that bizarre? We've been waiting for this moment. Why don't tell? And actually, the word is a little confused as he warned them. It's the same word that is used two more times in this exact story. It means to rebuke. Like when Jesus rebukes demons, this is the same word for warning, rebuking. He rebukes them that strongly. Don't you tell anybody about this? Why would he do that? Why is Jesus always doing that? You know why? Because you'll see in this in just a moment, they didn't have a correct understanding of who Jesus really was. They only had a glimpse. Some of you are in supervisory positions at work or whatever, okay? And if you have somebody that you supervise, an employee or whatever, and they, they understand just a little bit about what it means to run the organization or whatever, you know, on and on it goes, and you release them and they tell that little bit, but there's so much they don't understand, and they also tell the stuff they don't understand, like they get into all the stuff they don't understand, what are you going to have in your organization? A problem. You're going to have a problem, Okay. They, but they told the piece, one right piece, yes, but they told this massive piece over here that was completely wrong. Well, what's the wrong that they don't understand? Well, let's get into it. Warns them, don't tell anybody. They began to teach them. Jesus began to say, I must suffer. This is crazy. Kings don't suffer. Kings rule and reign. Kings don't suffer. So he begins to say things that doesn't make sense. I'm going to be rejected by elders and chief priests and teachers of the law, and I must be killed. And after three days, I'm going to rise again. He spoke plainly. didn't speak in parables. He wanted them to get it. He spoke plainly about this, and they got it. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Like Jesus had a demon. I'm rebuking you, Jesus. You're wrong. You must not suffer. Because if the king suffers and you're one of the king's men, what does that mean for the king's man? Oh, you're going to suffer too. And this isn't good. I signed up with you because I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be a rock star like you. I wanted to be, you know, in power. He takes him aside, rebukes him. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples and he rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Why does he call him Satan? Because when Satan tempted Jesus, what did Satan try to do? Try to get Jesus not to go to the cross. Same thing that Peter's trying to get to. Jesus, don't dare go to the cross. Okay. You don't have in mind the things of God, but you have in mind the things of men. All right. So I want to talk about three things, unlikely people, unlikely places, and a very, very unlikely plan. God specializes in unlikely people. So many people I hear say this, these things. They say this right there. They say, you don't know who I am. You know who I am. You know who I am. You know who I am, what I've done, where I've been. You don't know who I am. And I want you to know this. If you feel like one of those unlikely people this morning, if you're really unlikely, you know, like, your behaviors or the things you've done or the things where you've been or, or your belief about God or how moral of a life you live. Like you think a man is totally unlikely that God would ever do something super special in my life. I want you to know that God specializes in people just like you. Just like you. Because God always does that. Always through Mark. That's what he's doing. He's specializing in the most unlikely of people constantly. So uh, Peter, the disciples, right? You think about this stuff. Peter, he's famous for denying that he even knows he's cussing like a sailor saying, I've never even seen this guy, Jesus, before. I've never met him before. And he's the leader. He's the leader of this whole thing. And, and, and you got right here, he's rebuking Jesus. How about the disciples? I've got to imagine everybody. Jesus stayed up all night praying. 
for this group that he's got with him. And look at the stuff that they do. So Jesus, after he tells him he must suffer, and then Peter does the rebuke, you know, right on the heels of that, Jesus begins to say, okay, you didn't get it the first time about the suffering bit. You didn't get, understand why I'm here. Let me tell you again. So he begins to talk about the suffering again. And then they move to the next town. The next town is Capernaum. And on their way there, they're arguing about something. And when they get to Capernaum, they walk inside the house where they're staying. And Jesus says, hey, guys, what was the heated argument going on out on the road? Like I saw you angry about something. What was it? And they wouldn't tell him. You know why they wouldn't tell him? Because they're arguing about who's the greatest. They're like completely missing it. On the heels of that... On the heels of that one, Jesus says, okay, obviously I've talked about my suffering twice. You didn't get it. Now I'm going to get really specific with you. So he says this, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be condemned to death. He just goes through it, right through it. You can read it in the scriptures in Mark 10. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spit on. I'm going to be flogged and I'm going to be killed. Okay. James and John, two of the disciples, two of the main disciples. Jesus, could you come over here for a second? Okay, come over here. Good. These guys finally got it. They want to talk to me about it. They want to tell me how sorry they feel for me and that they're with me and they're going to comfort me and all my pain. And they say, look, um, uh, you know, could each one of us have a throne? I mean, it would be, like, be like you going to somebody and just telling them about how your life is just completely, I mean, you're going through all this terrible time and they're like, oh, okay. Could you loan me 20 bucks? You think about this a second, everybody. You think about this. Here's the group of guys that Jesus spent all night praying for. I'm like, I mean, couldn't, couldn't you have done any better than that? I'll give you one last story, and then we're going to move on. So Jesus confronts right on the heels of this whole story. Right, he, he comes up on a situation where a father is very desperate. And the father's desperate because his young boy is suffering. The father's heart's broken for his young boy. Brings the boy to the disciples. Disciples pray for him. Pfft, nothing happens. Can't, not, no healing. No healing at all. So Jesus walks up on the scene. Hey, what's going on? And the father says, hey, I brought my son to your disciples. I'm desperate. He needs to be healed. All this stuff. And, and Jesus says, okay. And he heals him. Boom. And they walk inside of a house somewhere, wherever they are. Right? And the disciples are like, ah, what gives? Why could you do it? We couldn't do it. And Jesus says, hey, guys, you actually have to pray. That's what he says to them. He says, this thing only happens. This kind of thing only changes. These kind of, like the demon leaving. This only happens because of prayer. These guys were so independent and so arrogant and so thinking that they were all that. They're just so cool. They're hanging around with the cool guy, Jesus, the big rock star. Like, okay, we must be cool too. And so we can do these things of God without actually having to talk to God about it. That's the way human beings work. They weren't even praying. They weren't even praying. That happens to us sometimes. For some of us old dog church people, right? I know that. I've done that, right? Remember in the early days when you used to pray, 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 and now it's like, oh, whatever. I've been there, done that. Well, this is actually the last time that we um, talk about demons in Mark. Demon, demons are all over the place in the book of Mark. It's like a big demon fest. And we had demon week. Some of you might remember a few weeks ago we had full-blown demon week, and we talked about how in the world can sophisticated Washingtonians actually go for this kind of craziness about demons? And we tried to debunk that a little bit, so you'll have to actually listen to the full sermon. But I couldn't help myself today. I had to mention something, all right? Because two days after we did Demon Sunday, two days after Demon Sunday, I opened up Washingtonian Magazine, and I read something. Okay? Ooh, ripped it. Uh, uh, Jack Evans, Ward 2 Councilman. Some of you are familiar with the name, Georgetown, Ward 2 Councilman down in Georgetown. Georgetown's a very historic place. This is what he says, quote, 
Perhaps Georgetown's most intriguing historic landmark is Ward 2 Councilman. It's the most powerful city on the face of the earth. What does our councilman say the most historic place in Georgetown, a historical place? What, what, what does he say it is? Who, who wants to say it? What is it? Exactly. Exeter's staircase. I rest my case. Okay. That's how sophisticated we are. So uh, unlikely people. The disciples are very, very unlikely people. And what I want you to know is this. You're thinking to yourself, okay, God can do special things in other people's lives, but he can't do it in my life because you're an unlikely person. And I'm telling you this morning, you're exactly wrong. You're totally wrong. God wants to do special things in your life special things in your life. So don't choose that. And I want to do one other thing before we move on from this point, all right? I'd like you to take your little uh, bulletin, if you happen to have that right in front of you and possibly a pen, I'd like you to do this. I'd like you to do this, all of us together. I'm going to stop and pray. I want you to think, the first name that comes to your mind, who is the most unlikely person, the most unlikely person you could ever imagine in your mind that would ever become a follower of Jesus Christ? Whatever name first hits your mind, write it down. Now, if you're writing your neighbor's name down, like the person sitting next to you right now, cover it up so they can't see it. <laughs> Whoever comes to your mind, God specializes in unlikely people, just write that name down. We're going to stop right now and we're going to pray for this big, long list of names that is represented here because God specializes in unlikely people. We'll see what God does, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's a whole list of names. I've got my list. Everybody's got their list right here. Lord, you specialize. Now, we're thinking to ourselves, there's no way. There is no way. Anything's going to happen in this person's life. But God, you specialize in unlikely people. That's what we've seen through your word here constantly. Lord, whatever you want to do, do it in these people's lives. In Christ's name, amen. All right. Unlikely people, unlikely places. People say, you don't know where I've been, John. They were at Caesarea Philippi. What, is, what, is, what, what does that have to do with anything? The most incredible statement to this point in the, in the book of Mark happens in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi represented a very terrible place, a very painful place, a very painful place to the Jewish people. It was a place of immorality, injustice, and idolatry. All, it represented all kinds of terrible things that were done to the Jewish people as a Jewish nation and as followers of God. Okay? I don't want to get into the history, but everything bad, all right? So a lot of us think, you know what, look, okay, if God's going to do something special in my life, it's going to be when I get over here, when I get over here to that place over, over there, but not, not here. It's going to be over there. It's going to be some other time. And what God says is he specializes in doing things in very unlikely places. Some people think, you know what, God's going to do something special in my life when I get married. Like when I get married, oh, okay, whoo, everything's God's going to show up. Do something. Other people think, you know what? Huh, when I get single again, God, God's going God's gonna to do something really special. You know what I'm saying? Because it's always somewhere else, but it's not here. Because this place, when I finally have kids, when I finally get that job, when I finally get that promotion, if I could just move out of Washington, D.C., God would start moving in my life, right? But it's, it's all about something moving. So God does things in very unlikely places. I want to tell a quick story here um, from the Mount of Transfiguration. Right after the confession, they go up on the mountain. Peter, James, and John, and Jesus go on this mountain, and Moses and Elijah show up. And we're told the glory of God, God Almighty, just falls on the mountain. Peter looks at Jesus and says, whoa, this is awesome. And Mark tells us, like, Peter's out of his mind. He's like, whoa, he's frightened. He's excited. He's like, this is so cool. And he says something very interesting to Jesus. He says, look, I'll build three shelters. The word is tabernacles. Very interesting. I'll build three tabernacles. 
one for you, Jesus, and one for Moses, one for Elijah. Hey, look, we'll just stay here. And Jesus doesn't even bother to listen to that. And it is very true that us as human beings and every religion around the world, we all think the same way, right? We think that God is at special places, right? So you think that, okay? God is there in that tabernacle or that temple or that church or whatever. That, but God's there. God's not here in this most disgusting place where I am in my life or I'm suffering and I'm in pain. If I could just get myself to this place, that's where God is. He's not in Caesarea Philippi. He's, he's here. And I've always, I'm always trying to get here. I always, you know, God couldn't show up like at a middle school auditorium or anything like that, right? So I've got to get here. And what God is saying to us is I am with you everywhere. I am with you everywhere. If you'll drop your guard, I will be with you right here, right now. Don't keep your eyes always looking for some other place. I'm with you right here, right now. Unlikely places. Third and final thing I just want to mention here. It's a very unlikely plan. Very unlikely plan that we see presented before us here. I, I included this scripture verse, Jesus speaking, John fifteen sixteen. He says, you did not choose me, I chose you. And it's really important, and I want to try to make a point about this in, in conclusion, then we're going to do the Q&A, okay? Um, Jesus is saying, just work with me, think with me on this one, all right? I am choosing to, he says, I must die. He's saying, I am choosing to die because I am choosing you. I must suffer, I must die because I'm choosing you. Jesus says in the scripture, he says, no one takes my life. I'm freely laying it down. Like, I don't have to do this. I'm choosing to do this, okay? You know what all this means? I hope to try to make sense of this. God doesn't need you, and God doesn't need me. God chooses us. God doesn't need us. He choo- and that makes a big difference in our relationship with God. We have a relationship with people in this world because in some way they need us and we need them. It's reciprocal. It's not reciprocal with us and God. And until we fully understand this, we're going to walk around in fear and trembling a little bit in our relationship with God until we truly understand one day that God doesn't need me. He doesn't need me. Here's how relationships work. I do something for you. You do something for me. Okay, back When Krista and I, when we do marriage counseling, we talk to couples about it, we often talk about a book called His Needs, Her Needs. Okay? And in this book, it talks about a love bank. Love bank. We make deposits in each other's love banks. What your needs are. You know, he meets her needs and she meets his needs and everybody's happy. And if you fill that bank up enough, you're just going to glow. I mean, you're going to be glowing. It's going to be wonderful. The problem here is, and we all talk about, oh, yes, we want to get to love unconditionally. Ah, it's not going to happen here. And not, it's not. So forget that, okay? okay? We have to meet each other. And the thing is, in marriage, whoo, man, the, the, you know, the bullseye is always moving. Like, it's kind of seasonal. Like, when our kids were young, I, the, Krista's top need was for me to clean the kitchen. Woo, you're filling my love bank, cleaning the kitchen. Well, our kids aren't young anymore. And what happens is, is the bullseye moved. The bullseye moved, but I didn't move. So I have to keep, so I'm in there scrubbing, cleaning the kitchen. Like, whoa, shine, woman. You know what I'm saying? Look how happy you must be. It's like, that's not my top need anymore, idiot. You know, do something. You understand? So it it, it changes. Listen, listen, listen. So 
When I stop performing to meet either my employer's need or my spouse's needs or my friend's needs or my family's needs, if I don't meet it at that high level anymore, I'm going to fear that they're going to be disappointed with me and don't want me anymore. Okay? Because I have to do something to meet their need. I have to do something to meet their need. So I walk around in fear all the time because, see, they need me. You know how important it is to have a God that doesn't need us? It means everything. That's why he says he didn't give us a spirit of fear because he doesn't need us. Now, look, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are totally, completely, and magnificently complete without you or I. They need nothing from us. Need They choose us. Well, if, if I'm a captain or a general manager or whatever, like when I'm picking teams for basketball, all right, let's just, just make it really simple. All right, I pick a team, I start choosing people. Well, that guy can hit a jumper, this guy knows how to play defense, and this guy knows how to set a pick. You're on my team because you do something for me. Does that make sense? We pick a spouse the same way. We pick a place of employment. You know what? I'm going to work for you because you are good for the paycheck. You stop giving me the paycheck, we're done, right? That's the way it works, okay? God looks at us and says, you know what? You can do nothing for me. I want you on my team anyway because I choose you. So last week, I'm almost done. Last week, we talked about dropping our guard and just letting God embrace us. And I would imagine there was a bunch of us in this room, if you were here last week, that said, you know what, Ooh, that really sounds cool, but I'm not going to drop my guard and let God embrace me because if I do, I feel like I'm going to disappoint God. And what this means, here's where it all plays out is. Here's where it all plays out. We can drop our guard. We can allow God to embrace us, to touch us. We can do it because we know that we are not going to disappoint God because he doesn't need us. He doesn't, doesn't need us. So we think, is God going to be disappointed with me when I fail him? God will never be disappointed with you. He'll be disappointed for you, but he'll never be disappointed with you because he doesn't need you. Last story, when? Come on up, Derek, wherever you are. Uh, so the boy, the possessed boy, okay? The father, this is really incredible. The father goes to Jesus, the possessed boy, and the disciples couldn't do anything. And the father says to Jesus, when Jesus shows up, he says, look, if you can do anything. And Jesus says, if? We talking about if. Did you know who I am? If I can do anything. And the father says, if you can do anything, please help my son. And Jesus says, look, if you can believe, all things are possible. And here's the man. He says, this is what he says. He says, I believe. Help my unbelief. You see a problem with that statement? Like, which one is it? Do you believe or do you not believe? Which one? I believe. Help my unbelief. I mean, pick a side, man. Come on. What is he saying is this? He's saying to Jesus, I believe about this much. I have this much unbelief. I'm being completely honest with you. Can you help me? Now, we would say as a crowd, oh, buddy, you got close, but you just blew it. You should have lied to Jesus. You should have said, I believe, you know, boom. Because our human thinking says if we're totally honest with God, if we're totally honest with God, then, then God will be disappointed with us. And yet Jesus says to that guy after he says, hey, look, I'm not living right. 
I'm not believing right. There's a lot wrong with me. Jesus, come here. Come on. Here's the crazy thing. A lot of people say, you know what? I'm going to get right with God when I get some things cleaned up in my life. I'm going to stop doing some stuff. I'm going to get my act cleaned up. Then I'm going to, me and God, we're going to embrace. You know the problem with that is there? It's the last thing I'm going to say. Listen, when you do that, you are now dirtier than you have ever been in your life because you did it. You thought you could clean yourself up. God is never disappointed with us. He's only disappointed for us when we make wrong choices. All right, so I do have to say, um, 11 o'clock service, you blew 9.30 out of the water with the questions. Um, you guys were much more tech-savvy than them. Um, 9.30 service, they kept, they kept testing, test, texting me questions about my hair, whether it was natural or, like, perm. Very spiritual. Oh, I don't perm my hair. Anyway. Um, all right, let's go. Let's, let's, let's hit it. Um, why do you think radical physical miracles like those found in Mark don't happen today. Do they happen, or have I missed them? Or is that inappropriately asking for a sign? Well, uh, the scripture's pretty clear. You know, Jesus shows up, and, I mean, God. None of us are God walking around the earth. Jesus is God. And he's, because it's prophesied that he would, you know, there'd be signs, there'd be wonders, there'd be things that he would do, and, and he does. And he heals, and he helps. And, and that's not that that doesn't happen today. I believe it can happen, but... You know, it's not like Jesus walking up, you know, down these aisles. It's not, it's, it's not the same. So we don't, see, we don't see it as much, which leads us to questions of suffering and things like that. But um, we, we, we just don't because it was during a certain time. It, it drew attention to Jesus' claims of divinity, which those miracles had a portion of that claim to his divinity. Uh, he also did other things to that. So that's why, that's why we, we don't. Can we still believe? Absolutely. I do. That's what I'm hoping for. Good stuff. Um, kind of along those lines, you mentioned suffering. So does the suffering and martyrdom of Jesus and his disciples show that we can't be sure of God helping us to do well physically or materially in this life? So when we look at those followers and Jesus, they suffered. Does that mean we can't be sure that we're going to be okay? Oh, that, so if I'm understanding the question right then, it's like, then I can be absolutely sure, because I've heard people say this before, that yes, yes, God has to heal. And if God doesn't heal, there's like something wrong with my belief or I got sin in my life or something. And financial provision and just, you know, good health and all that good stuff. Right, right. So, yeah, no. I mean, the Apostle Paul you know, once he really turned his life around, he was about as on track as a, as a human being could be, would seem to me. And he had an affliction, we're told, in the Bible. And that affliction didn't go, and he kept talking to God about it, and, and, and it didn't go away. So I, think, I don't think we can say, hey, yeah, I'm claiming that I'm going to be healed. There will come a day. The, the really good news is, is there will come a day when everything is going to be made right. That's the news of Scripture. Just as a side note to that, what I think is very interesting about this, the whole suffering, and as much as Peter hated suffering and he was rebuking Jesus over it, I hate it too, okay? I'm not into suffering. I don't like it. You know, there must be a better plan, Jesus. But isn't it interesting that the two confessions about who Jesus is that we find in Mark, it happens twice. Peter gives us one in Mark 8, and then the second one happens at the end of the book with the Roman centurion. And both of them happened in the context of suffering. Both of them happened in the... Like, 
they began, Peter began to see, and the Roman centurion fully sees, but it happens in the context of suffering. That just is fascinating to me. Okay. In the sermon, uh, the, the recent sermons on gospel versus religion, yes. you said, in essence, that after someone accepts Christ as their Savior, there's no way they can lose their salvation. What if I accept Jesus as my Savior, and then I steal, murder, etc., etc., curse God, and die? Do I still go to heaven? Uh, yeah, well, there's actually kind of two answers to that. Yes, I mean, we're not saved on merit of our performance. So when God forgives us of our sin, our sins are forgiven past, present, and future. So if I didn't do anything to get me saved, like I didn't perform any holy acts and I wasn't Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, and because, I mean, I was Mr. Goody Two-Shoes and that got me saved, right? If I could be saved on the basis of my performance, well, then I can be unsaved, so to speak, on the basis of my performance. And what is so clear in the Bible is, is that's not true. That we are saved by grace. And one of the problems I always bring up is that we talk about grace in church, like not just this church, but church worldwide. We talk about grace. Oh, yeah, we believe in grace, but we just don't practice grace. And so the idea here is, yes, you could do all that. However, let me come around the other side of the coin on you. If you really have understood and accepted the grace of God, that is powerful. And what happens is when you really get that concept, it's by grace, I didn't do anything to earn this, the power of God's grace like, is set off in your life, and you have a desire. You know how you feel sometimes? Oh, man, i got to be good. i got to do this. i got to do that. The grace hasn't been fully set off in your life because what happens is when it is, you start feeling, oh, man, I'm excited about actually uh, following God certain, you know, certain ways and doing certain things. It's not longer a have to. It's a, it's a, it's a want to. So, Thank you. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is constantly warning folks not to tell others about himself. How should this influence our own approach to evangelism? How should this influence our own approach? about? Okay, so uh, what we see is, is he's always saying to be quiet, and I kind of talked about this at the beginning of the sermon, you know, be quiet because they, they didn't have a full view of Jesus. It was a faulty view. Obviously, as Peter is, he's rebuking Jesus. We understand he has a faulty view of Jesus' mission and who Jesus is, so we got a problem. And so once they have a clear view, and the clear view is once they see all that, okay, so Jesus at the end of his three years of ministry, and he's crucified, and he rises from the dead, Everything changes. And no longer is it, hey, don't tell anybody. It's go and tell everybody, everybody about the grace of Jesus Christ. Everything changes. So how should that shape our evangelism now? Well, once we get to the place that we're understanding the message, you know, we get to that same place that they are, we're understanding Jesus' mission and his message, then we should run and tell as much as possible. But if we're, you know, go out and, preach something else, then maybe we should just, I guess, stay quiet. Would you, do you, have you ever seen somebody, maybe some, you ever seen somebody witness to somebody and you're like, oh gosh, I wish you would just shut up? <laughs> I have. So, uh, Me too. So um, when we read through the gospel of Mark and, and other places in the Bible, are, are we the intended audience, like, is Jesus talking, are we supposed to read it as if Jesus is speaking directly to us with some of the radical things that he says, like, go sell all your possessions and give the poor, or, you know, or who's, who's your real family? Um, is, was that just for the, for the listeners that Jesus was talking to 2,000 years ago? Or is that, you know, are we supposed to read that as if he's speaking directly to us today? How do we make sense of that? Uh, it's both. 
He's speaking to them and he's speaking to us, God in his word. That's what he's doing. Here's the thing about us, though. From our standpoint, I mean, they're in their context, their exact context right then at the moment. They're in their culture. They're in all of that stuff going on. We need to get ourselves to their place. We need to hear it as they would hear it. And what would God speak to us in the midst of that? Our problem is, is when we don't, we, we don't diligently study. We don't diligently, the Bible says we should study to show ourselves. When we don't diligently dig in and we have all kinds of tools, thank the Lord, we have so many tools at our disposal today to do that. When we don't diligently un- understand the context and the culture of what's going on. So Jesus said, hey, sell all your possessions. Well, there's more behind that, all right? There's, there's more behind, and all these other, more, we need to understand that. So what is, we have to use our brains, our these brains, these wonderful brains that God gave us and dig a little deeper, right? It's only been in the last hundred years that this label has been put upon the Christian community. I mean, for centuries, everybody, centuries, the Christian community is like the leaders in, in thought and in reason and in science. And it's been the last hundred years like, oh, those idiot Christians, then they don't believe science and all this kind of stuff. The greatest scientists were all devoted followers of Jesus. Well, not all, but you know what I'm saying. Give me some leeway. All right, some of them were. Okay, what I'm saying is it's so crazy. God is calling us to think, to think and to use our brains. Oh, uh, I just read, sorry, going way off the track here. Uh, We just discovered another galaxy. It's like 13 billion light years away. When Galileo in 1609 put that first telescope up there and he could, like, see the moon, he could see the craters, and we're like, whoa, will we ever see anything greater than that? That's probably what they thought at the time. We just saw a galaxy 13 million light years away. That's God. You know why? There is so much more to God. Some of us who've been in church all our life, oh, yeah, I've heard that story. I heard that story. Look, there is an ocean about God that we haven't even discovered yet, and we just need to move in with our brains and work and study and learn. It's so exciting. It's incredible. Uh, the book of Mark is just absolutely brilliant. Sorry. Can we do one more? Yes. Okay. What is the purpose? This is probably my favorite one. Uh, what is the purpose of Jesus having disciples when they seem so flawed and arrogant? What in the world are we supposed to learn from them? Uh, it's going to sound really negative, but that, that's us. That's the purpose. We are them. It's so easy for me to stand back and say, look at those knuckleheads. They are just a bunch of idiots, you know? Well, that's what makes me feel so good when I read those stories, man. <laughs> if you were here last week, we talked about hindsight's 2020, that we look back on ourselves, hey, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, oh, my gosh, I was such a fool for believing that or wearing that. Why did I wear my hair like that or those bell bottoms? Or, you know, whatever, you know what I'm saying? We look back and we say, oh, my gosh, I was such a fool. And I thought about a lot about that this week when we decided to do this Q&A because I thought, man, Sunday night I'm going to look back and say, you idiot, you should have never done the Q&A, right? <laughs> but uh, that's us, those disciples. I, I do, I'm discovering I do not some of those same things. I like, I'm doing all of these same things that those guys are doing. I am a very unlikely choice by God. I'm a very unlikely choice by God. You done? Yeah. Anything to tell us about your hair? No. Nope. Uh, Not at all. It's, it's an not- English afro. <laughs> uh, okay. 
All right. Well, uh, look, we, we'll hold off on that song. We won't, okay? We'll just close. We'll have a prayer. Thanks for listening. Let's pray. Lord, uh, wonderful questions. I'm sure there's a lot more uh, questions that weren't asked. But, Lord, you hold the answers. You know, one thing's clear is your grace is so incredible and powerful and wonderful, and we just need to keep thinking and thinking about it and allowing it to seep down into the very depths of our being so that we can be truly and utterly free. Free from performance, free from fear, the fear of disappointing you, and just let our guards down and allow you to embrace us. God bless every person here today in just an extra special way. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for hanging out.